When you think of the book of Acts, the first thing that might pop into your mind is a famous Pharisee named Saul who would go on to convert and rename himself Paul, his Greek name. And Acts provides an account of his amazing journeys, his famous three missionary journeys. But what's so often forgotten is the beginning of Acts. The first 12 books of Acts is focused not on Paul, but on a church, the very first church, the church founded in Jerusalem. If you look into Acts 1, what you'll notice is that the account starts right where Luke leaves off. Matthew, Mark, and John will have an account of Jesus' dialogue in the end of their Gospels, but Luke instead picks up where he leads off in Luke into Acts 1. And if you look at Acts 1.8, you'll have Luke's version of the Great Commission. And what's unique about his account is that he has a promise of something called the Holy Spirit, which the disciples should be awaiting. A few verses before then, he tells his disciples not to leave to their homeland of Galilee up north, but to stay in the city where he was crucified in Jerusalem because he promised a spirit would be coming shortly. And if we fast forward to Acts 2, that's exactly what happens. When Acts 2 starts, everyone is gathered for Pentecost. Uh, for those who don't know, Pentecost is literally the Greek word for 50. And Pentecost is another word for the Feast of Weeks, which is one of the three pilgrimage festivals the Jews observe, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. And if you join our Bible Basics class, you'll be able to, we'll be able to go more in depth into those festivals. But for now, just know that like Passover, we're going to have a huge gathering, an influx of foreign Jews from all different colonies throughout Rome, from Egypt to up north, to Turkey, to Rome, uh, to Greece. So all of these different Jews are gathering together in Jerusalem for this special event. Exactly 50 days after Jesus had his last supper, right before he was betrayed. And so during this time, a violent wind storms the upper room. There's flames uh, of tongues, is what Luke accounts is the imagery. And through this commotion, a crowd begins to gather and examine what is going on. What is this reckoning that's happening? And so little does this crowd know that the Holy Spirit descends upon the entire crowd and suddenly they are saying utterances, praising God, speaking in a way that all of these Jews understand. Jews from Egypt, from Greece, from Arabia, all of these different Jews are having one united language. And it gives you a beautiful image of what we can speculate heaven to be like, where Christians from all walks of life, all different native tongues come together praising of one single God in a single spirit. It is a reverse from the incident at the Tower of Babel, where people are dispersed and separated by God because they unite in pride. Here, they are uniting in worship to the one true God. During this incident, there are some outsiders that begin to 
harass and mock those who are under the spirit because they, when they hear their utterances, they don't hear their language, they hear nonsense. And so these outsiders are mocking them, making fun of them, and then that prompts Peter to step aside from the 12 apostles and to address the crowd loudly and to defend them. And little do we know that this defense of the crowd turned out to be what could be called the very first Christian sermon. It takes place in Acts 2, verses 14 through 40. We don't have time to read through it, but to summarize, Peter first defends the crowd by using logic. He says, the crowd is accusing those under the Holy Spirit to be drunk in the middle of the morning at 9 a.m. during breakfast time. So at first he says, well, logic would dictate that likely these uh, Jews that are under this would not be carousing drunk. Thousands of thousands of Jews would not be carousing the streets at 9 in the morning at breakfast time. He then goes on to explain what exactly is going on. And he quotes from two different Old Testament verses. The first verse he quotes from is the prophet Joel, where Joel foresees this in the last days that men, women, and those outside of the Jewish faith will praise God singly in unison. Those of all walks of life will be saved through God's spirit. The second is a psalm from David in which he points out to a well-known gravesite where they where David is proposed to be buried. And he points to that grave and says, he is still in his grave, dead. But this psalm promises a descendant of his who will overcome death. The verse literally says that they will not remain in the grave and their body will not decay. And not only is this person, is this prophet fulfilled, but it was fulfilled by the very Nazarite that 50 days earlier, this crowd cried out to be crucified. Their hearts were struck. Uh, their conscience was pierced. And during this time, Peter then goes on to give what could be called the very first altar call. If you read on, starting in verse 37, the crowd reacts, and they're like, what, what can we do? How can we be saved? And how Peter answers is that he, that he says to go and repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, and then you will receive the Holy Spirit. And if now we can arise and stand for our verse for today, it's going to pick up right where Peter leaves off when those are coming for their altar call. Uh, if you're able to please stand for the word of God in Acts 2, verses 41 through 47. It reads, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from the house 
to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of their heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You may be seated. Now, I don't want you just to stand and, and see these words. I want you to, to continue to look through this list because this list is telling us the inauguration of the very first church. And I want you to give, to see this image for what it is and what it entails. And as you do that, I want you to see what it doesn't say. There is no mention about pews, no mention about a choir or a vacation Bible school, no formal dress code, not a coming together once a week for a single hour on a Sunday morning. None of these were part of the founding of the very first church. And even though these things that we have in our American culture and our tradition can be important, um, they are tools and accommodations that will hopefully help emphasize worship or hopefully help glorify God. But once again, that's not the question. The question is, are they essential? Are they essential for the church? I want to have a list of three different devotionals, three Ds for you to take away today that I would argue are the foundations to a sound church that glorifies Christ. The first one, if you look back, I want you to see verse 42. And it says in verse 42 that once a week on Sunday, they would devote themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Is that what it said? Or did it say once a week or does it say continually, all the time, as you go, continually be doing these things? So continually devoting to the apostles' teaching, teaching of the word of God, that is foundational for Winstanley Baptist Church. That's essential for any Bible-believing church. The Bible is not simply a tool to help guide us or guidelines to help give perimeters to a church. It is the foundation of what we do in all of our activities. From our church bylaws to our church doctrine, our beliefs, to even our worship songs, the lyrics that we sing, the words that we say in and outside of this building is going to be substantiated by the Word of God and guided only by the Word of God. So the Word of God is our foundation for truth. Second is our devotion to fellowship. Today, especially in our American culture, we have a unique perspective on individualism, a unique emphasis on our self-autonomy. Many in our culture believe that we can pray, we can worship God, and we can do all this without being in the church building. We can just watch our services online. We can just go to our commute to work and hear our Jesus Calling CD collection. We can go and, and go to our Bible app and have a devotional we can do each day. All of this without being part of a church body. All of this without being in a fellowship, a member of a church. And to that, I would say it would be baffling. 
it would be completely unheard of and foreign to the apostles to have this kind of culture or this thought on what it meant to be part of a church. I would say that it contradicts scripture, but really it's rooted in a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be Christian. And I'm about to give you a major quote, an idea that I want you to take away with today. And that is that the church is not a place to go to. It is something you become part of once you become a believer. And I'll say that again. The church is not a place you go to. It is something you become part of once you become a believer. Remember the apostles, Peter, Andrew, John, James, all of them were fishermen. And they, what did they do? They casted their nets aside and they followed Jesus. When they went on a donkey to Jerusalem, little did they know that they would never return back to their homeland of Galilee. They left their neighbors behind, they left their land behind, they left their possessions behind, they put everything behind them and they founded this church in Jerusalem. And similarly, all of these people that gathered for Pentecost, little did they know that they were not going to go back to their homes. They were going to remain and be faithful to their church body. And all that to say is what they had, the only thing that they had were each other. They were dependent on one another. They were praying with one another. Everything they did was with each other. And how far away has church today been away from this model, this mindset that our church family is our family? It is not just a personal relationship or a personal faith. It is a corporate faith. It is assembling with one another for prayer, for teaching, for singing, and learning God's word in, corporate, in a corporate setting. It is sharing food and celebration and enjoying each other's company, doing activities together, having Christian brothers and sisters keeping us accountable, staying in the word of God, watching our walk, praying and supporting one another during times of struggle and depression. This is an essential ingredient of what it means to be a church. And by the way, you can do all this more than once a week on Sunday at this time. I promise you, Timothy and I will not get mad if you go and sing songs together as a family or look into God's word outside of church hours. Sunday church was not a reality for these early Christians because it's all that they've ever known and all that they've ever were committed to was a church body. And that was their one and only focus and we can see that especially in the life of the Apostle Paul, who forgone his position as a scribe and a Pharisee to go and tent make and to go completely devote himself to the preaching of God's word throughout the world. Our last D, devotion, comes from the devotion of service. I want you to look at other chapters throughout the uh, 1 through 12 during this image of the early church. In chapter 4, we're introduced to a man named Joseph who owns land. He's from the island of Cyprus, uh, which was traveled often by Paul. He goes and sells his possessions in order to sustain the needs of those in the church that cannot provide himself for themselves. 
and he was better known by his nickname, Barnabas. If you look at chapter 6, there's a controversy that arises in the early days of the church. The foreign Jews that were outside of Jerusalem, the orphans and the widows from the outsiders were not getting their daily ration of food and were being overlooked constantly. And the apostles came up with a solution together and they, uh, they made a task force especially designed to meet the needs of the orphans and the widows. They appointed seven men of good credentials to go and overlook all their needs and to fully take care of them. And this position would later be identified as deacons. One of these deacons was named Stephen. Stephen was full of grace, was charismatic, and full of the Holy Spirit. And one day at the temple, he gets into an argument with a few uh, ex-slave Jews that were not Christians. And while he was arguing with them, they were very bitter and their heart was heartened when they heard the words of Stephen. So one of them decided to go and spread a false rumor that Stephen uh, spoke a blasphemy. And so what turned out to be a small lie turned into a frenzy and a riot at the temple. Suddenly, they had an improvised trial, and Stephen, throughout chapter 7, has to defend himself against these wild accusations. But once he said that Jesus was at the right hand of God, his, seal was fate, his, his fate was sealed. And the crowd was outraged by everything. And so what they decided to do was drive him outside of the temple, outside of the city gates where lawlessness could be tolerated. And they took stones and they killed him, pelting him with stones. All the while, Stephen was smiling like an angel, knowing that he would be saved by Jesus. Why do I bring up these examples in the very first church? Because it tells and gives us the information of what it meant to be part of a church. It was not about what the church could do for me, it's what could I do to sacrifice for the church? What am I willing to give up for the church? Am I willing to give up my comfort? Am I willing to give up my possessions, what I hold dear? Or most of all, would I be willing to give up my life for the church? for Christ. These illustrate the devout posture of these apostles, of the reality of what it meant to follow Christ. And here we are comforted. A lot of this we don't have to worry about because of blessings like freedom of religion, but that's not a reality in many churches around the world even today. So when we think of what's essential this is the image you should have of devotion, of service to one another and to others outside the community. I want to take you now to a letter in Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you have time, I hope that you could read this entire chapter, uh, but because we don't have much time, I'm just going to take a few verses. But the, the summary is that Paul gives a beautiful illustration of what it means for each and every one of us 
as having a role that is essential for the church. Starting in verse 4, Paul writes, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of ministries and the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So what does that mean? A spirit gifts, talents to all, not a few, not to the pastor, not to the worship leaders, not to the tech people, but all members of the body have been given a spirit uniquely guided and sharpened to be a tool for the church. The church is not meant to have spectators come for once an hour on Sunday. It is meant to be an active role to be part of our church community, obligations to help one another and help our community and be a light to others. It could be many different things and take shape in many different ways. For some, it might be helping lead a Sunday school class. It could be being part of a prayer team that prays for those of us who are in the hospital. It could be those who specialize in a skill like an electrician that can make sure our lights and everything is up to code. Every single bit can be used to glorify God. It could be things outside of this building and into our community. It could be teaching Hispanics and others how to learn English as a second language. It could be mentoring a young lady who is going through an unplanned pregnancy and counseling her through that, or a young man who found himself in the wrong crowd that needs a guide and a mentor in his life. So many needs, and yet so many of us find ourselves idle, sitting by each and every Sunday, feeling as if there is no need or no role for them. But the truth couldn't be further, that each one of us has a special role and a gift and not just any gift, but God working through them through his spirit and having a unique gift that no one else in this church has. And I love his illustration. If you look into at verse 21, where he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need for you. So just like a, the anatomy of a human body, we need not just a head or an eye or an ear, we need the joints, we need the bone structures, we need those who are taking care of each and every need within our church body. And there's a place for you to do that. So we want to be watchful and be willing to enter into service for the Lord in his word, in his fellowship, and in his service. As we close out, I want to tell you a story about Jenny and I, how we met. We were part of a Hispanic ministry in Atlanta, helping tutor Hispanic children that were struggling, um, that had a very high dropout rate. And we would help tutor them once a week. They would come, we would give them rides to the church, and we would tutor them for an hour, play with them for an hour, and hear God's word also. And it was a great opportunity to build relationships, to keep them disciplined and accountable for doing their homework each and every day. The director named Felix, he 
led us and invited us. He's from the DR, and he invited us to a mission trip to the DR. And it wasn't a typical mission trip where you would just go for one week or a few weeks, but it would be a five-year commitment to go to a village each and every year for the next five years for every spring break. And through that, we would oversee a church plant in a village called Cativo. And so we would go to to Hartsfield International Airport, get on a plane, go to Santo Domingo at the capital, and then go on a four-hour van ride across uh, to a place called San Juan. And for those who have ever been to the DR, do not drive. It is crazy. The traffic is outrageous. Uh, The the laws are very loose, if you want to call them laws. Um, There's a lot of improvised driving there. Um, So it's, it's a very different culture. And so we would go to San Juan, and from there, we would go through up to the mountains into the most isolated regions in central Dominican. And it is just beautiful. You know, I keep telling everyone that it's just like you're going into Jurassic Park, like you're on the backdrop. You see all these mountains and these jungles, and there's just no, no technology, just wildlife. It's a beautiful, beautiful sight. And so you drive up there, you, drive, you have to have a four-wheel drive vehicle, you go through shallow rivers that you cross through. And then we finally arrive about in 30 minutes to this village called Cativo, who are off the grid, they live off the land, they farm their own food, they have their own trade system, isolated in their region. And of course, they've never heard the word of God. They believe in their ancestral religion, which is some sort of mix of Catholicism with some mysticism. They'll have images of the Virgin Mary or these crosses, uh, pillars that they'll pray to in order to have rain or nourishment or healing. They go to these objects for their guide and for their, to hear their petitions. But when we went there, we taught them that it's not through material objects that God lives in. It's through his son, through the Holy Spirit, that we can communicate to God all of our needs. And we evangelized to what you could say is the chief of that village in Cativo, Nemorhino, and his son Santo. And not only did they come to know the Lord, each year they grew And finally, by the end of it, they were able to recruit a team to go to other surrounding villages telling them about Jesus and the gospel. And one memorable thing is when we meet there, uh, we don't have a church building. We most certainly do not have air conditioning. What we have is a cement slab and a tarp as a steeple and carpets. Instead of pews, we'd have little carpets for kids to to surround us and hear Bible stories, to hear the stories of Jesus and his miracles. They had an opportunity to learn to read and write in Spanish, hearing through biblical stories. They had an opportunity to sing songs, to have VBS, to have puppet shows, illustrating the gospel and God's love for them. That was what church was. It wasn't hearing or or singing certain hymns, It wasn't having certain accommodations. It wasn't having Michael W. Smith or Warren Dangle to come and lead us in worship. It was those who could sing and who could not so well sing coming together 
and hearing just repetitive chants that we would do a cappella, just simple chants about God's love in Spanish. And it was a beautiful sight for exactly what the church was. It had the bare bone necessities. It had, it was saturated in the words of God. It was saturated in fellowship, living among one another in fellowship of Christ. And it had service to one another, meeting needs in a tangible way. Each year we would have a service project. Our first one was planting, uh, teaching them how to make potato plants. And another was a building project where we would actually build kind of a shack that would be their church building and would also be used as a shelter for those who are vulnerable in that community. And so we use all three of these foundations in building the church in Kativa that's still there today. And I want you to think back and see what is it that the church really is. Is it a place for me to go and enjoy and to hear what I want to hear at the time I want to hear it uh, with people that I want to be at it? Is that what the church is? Or is the church putting God first, putting God first and putting fellowship and others above yourself to sacrifice everything to serve the church? Instead of asking yourself, what am I getting out of church? What is this particular church feeding me and my needs? Maybe we can ask, what are we willing to lose on behalf of it? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we look into your word and we see and reflect so much of what's lacking today, Lord, when we no longer have the accommodations, the programs we once had during the pandemic, where we have churches that are losing members quickly because they are out of their comfortable Sunday routine, are not able to meet in ways that they see fit. Father, let us go back to the basics, to the essentials, to the model we see at the earliest onset of the church in Jerusalem and see that as our model, Lord. Father, not having a me-centric view of our church, but Father and other-centric, a Christ-centric, a gospel-centric view of our church and our fellowship. Father, I pray that as we reflect upon this and hearing your word, that Lord, we can tap into those gifts of the Holy Spirit, that we can pray, that we can be able to seek out and to serve in ways that we not we didn't think were possible until we trusted you, until we relied on you instead of our own abilities. So Father, I pray that you give us that light, that commitment for service, for your word, for fellowship. And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.